If you have a Bible with you, you could turn to Mark chapter 15. Uh, Mark 15, and we'll pray before we open it up. Uh, Father, you've been so good in sending us Christ. His death was a gift like no other, but, but we can't personally receive that and benefit from that unless you give us faith in it. So, so we pray that tonight, as your word is read, that we would have a sense of your speaking. We pray that you would allow the hearing of your word tonight to give us that gift of faith. We pray that tonight you would strengthen our reliance on Jesus, that you'd grow our gratitude for Jesus and what he's done on that cross. We pray also that you give us the gift of repentance from, from our sins and faith in Jesus Christ so that we might have life and we might have life to the full. Father, speak to us tonight in your word. We pray that your spirit will be working to draw us to yourself, to draw, draw us away from our sin and to show the superior value of Christ to everything else that we think that we could, could find in this world. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we've studied through the Apostles' Creed over the last bunch of weeks, we've seen a bunch of truths that are so important that you can't deny them and still call yourself a Christian. And so, so we said that the Creed says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. And tonight we'll focus in on the truth that he was crucified, died, and was buried in my short message and then that he descended to the dead in, in Cody's. And as we look at this truth, as we look at this in, event in history, it's kind of strange that, that this dark truth, the fact that the Son of God suffered and died and was buried, is the place that we as Christians go for our highest joy. And so tonight we'll look at Mark 15, where we'll see that his death brings us life, where we'll see that the greatest of all sorrows God turned into, the greatest of all possible joys for us, and as we look at the center of our faith, that the cross of Jesus Christ is, there's so much we could focus on. There's so many different aspects to that because that affects everything. It affects all of our lives. It affects all of history. And any aspect that we focus on means there are going to be a hundred others that, that we don't focus on. But tonight we're going to focus in on some of the words that were spoken about Jesus while he was going to that cross in mockery. And these words were what D.A. Carson in his book Scandalous calls the ironies of the cross. Words that were spoken to mock Jesus, that we speak about him in worship. There were things that when people saw Jesus going to the cross, they saw as shameful, but we look back now and we know that they're glorious. They saw things in him that looked like failure, but we see those things as complete victory. They saw things that looked completely foolish, but we see them now as infinitely wise. And so some of the things that we'll see in Mark 15 tonight is that they mocked him for his claim to be king, but we worship him as king. They mocked him for some of his bold claims uh, to power, and we worship him for that. And they mocked him for claiming to be a Christ or a conqueror, and we worship him knowing that, that he is. And so Mark 15, starting in verse 21, it says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. Now, when Jesus was on earth, the kings were the most powerful people in the world. 
I mean, our day, the, the remaining kings and queens, for the most part, are just symbols and figureheads. They don't really have that much power in the places where they are. But during Jesus' time on earth, they absolutely ruled. There were no constitutions. There was only the power of the king. The king wasn't a politician. He ruled over his people, and it was unthinkable that the people would tell the king what to do. They were the weak ones, and he was the strong one. And so here's Jesus, who claimed to be a king, but he's on a cross where they execute the criminals. And what kind of victory is that? Remember, just days before, he had rode in on a donkey. They, they laid out their palm branches. They yelled out, Hosanna, save us now. They worshiped him as king. They were expecting that he was going to overthrow their oppressors. He was going to rule. But then through a series of kangaroo trials, Jesus was condemned to die as the lowliest of criminals, not to reign as a king like they had thought. So in their minds, he couldn't possibly be a king, certainly not a victorious one. If he was a king at all, he was a failed one. He was like an ousted king, a deposed king. So they mocked him. But remember who he is. Jesus is God, and he never ceased to be God. He's the one who was worshipped by legions of angels, and here he is being ridiculed by this battalion of soldiers. In another gospel account, it says that they put a scarlet robe on him to, to mock him for claiming to be royalty. And remember, this is the Jesus that Isaiah had seen. And when Isaiah had a vision of him, he saw him as the one with a glorious robe and the train of that robe filled the temple. But Jesus laid aside that robe to take on this one. And they put a crown of thorns on his head, all to mock his claim to be king. They said, hail king of the Jews, and they beat him. And they put this inscription above his head that said, king of the Jews, all in mockery. But we know today that their words were true. That he is the king. They didn't know what they were saying. They didn't know that that crown that they made out of those long thorns was a kingly crown. They didn't know they were putting that crown on the head of the king over all other kings. Who did come to be victorious. Who did come to reign over people's greatest oppressor. But their greatest oppressor was sin and the judgment to come. And he came to really rule and really free them from that. So they mocked him as a foolish king, but we know that because of the cross, he showed himself to be the infinitely wise king. So they mocked his claim to be king, and also they mocked his claim to power. In verse 27 it says, And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Now Jesus had made that claim. Way back in John 2, Jesus went into the temple and he flipped over the tables. He drove out the money changers and he announced there in John 2, 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And that was a claim to have way more power than anybody had in, in their day, really, or in ours. And we bought this building in March and then, then we spent nine months doing a remodeling and build out on the inside of a building that already existed took us nine months, not three days, and we had modern technology. Jesus goes into the temple that's made out of stones and even far more majestic than the building we're in today, and he says, tear this temple down, and in three days, I'll build it up again. That would never happen. In their days, a big project like that, an architect would never live to see the project completed because things like that took way too long. 
So his claim to be able to rebuild the temple sounded like a claim to power that just couldn't be true. It just didn't exist among people in his day. And now here's this one who claimed to have that much power, and he's hanging up on the cross, crucified. He claimed to have all that strength, but there he was, hanging on the criminal's cross with his strength draining away. So what did Jesus mean by that claim? Well, in Old Testament days, before the cross, the temple was the place where God met with people. So you would go to the temple to pray. You would offer a sacrifice at the temple to atone for sins. At times, God was supernaturally present in the temple. And because of what Jesus was doing on the cross to bridge the gap between God and man, he was establishing himself as that temple. He was the new place now where where we could meet with God. And even though they were tearing his body down, three days later, he would rise from the dead to be the living temple of God, to be that meeting place between God and man. So the people are there mocking him, saying, he who would tear down the temple in three days, he claimed to have so much power, but look at him now. But little did they know that his power was on full display. He was showing the power to not love his own life to allow these men to to torture and kill him and to lay down his life for us. The temple was being torn down on the cross. And three days later, it rose again. So they mocked his apparently foolish claim to be king. They mocked his foolish claim to have enough power to tear down the temple and build it again in three days. And they also mocked his claim to be the Christ and the conqueror. Verse 30, it says, Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. When you were on a cross, there was never any hope of coming down from there alive. The cross was designed to torture a person as much as possible and then, and then kill them. And it's easy for us after 2,000 years of Christian history with lots of exposure to Christianity to, to see the cross only as a, a nice decorative symbol of faith. But in Jesus' day, the cross had not yet been given that meaning by Jesus. It, it was an object of horror. The crosses stood outside the city where the criminals would be condemned They didn't put crosses on roofs of buildings as decorations like we do today. You didn't want your kids to go anywhere near those crosses because they weren't objects of beauty. They were objects of horror. The Romans had perfected this method of torture and execution over the centuries to inflict the maximum pain pain and the maximum shame on their victims. And when Jesus went to the cross, the fact that, that he was God didn't make going to the cross any easier. He never used his deity to cheat at being human. And so when he went to that cross, he had the same pain that anybody else would have. He experienced the same same torture that that all the other criminals were experiencing. People looked at him and they mocked. They said, look at the Savior. Yeah, he saved all these people. He healed blind people so they could see. He healed the deaf. He raised the dead. But that couldn't possibly be true because look at this guy. He can't even save himself. And in one sense, this was true. He couldn't save himself. But it wasn't that he didn't have the ability to save himself. Jesus never ceased to be God. 
He could have called those angels that worshiped him to come and wipe out his enemies. He could have come down from the cross. He could have prevented this whole thing from happening to begin with. He didn't have to die. He willingly took this on. So he could have saved himself in that sense. But Jesus also knew that if he saved himself, he couldn't have saved others. The death on the cross for for Jesus was the place where he made the great exchange so that we could be saved. Scripture says that it was there that, that he who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. All of our sin, the death that we deserve, the wrath of God that we deserve was all poured out on him and his righteousness and life was given to us at the cross. And if he hadn't died, he wouldn't have been the Savior. So the mockers looked at him and they thought, you can't be a Savior if you die, but Jesus knew that he couldn't be the Savior if he didn't die. So no, he couldn't save himself. Not if he was going to save us. If I brought one of my kids to the doctor and found out that they had an illness that would would end in their death if they didn't get a heart transplant, and I had the option of giving my heart so that they could live, that'd be an easy decision. Like, sure, absolutely, I love my child. I'll definitely die so they can live. Nobody would mock and say, yeah, he claims to be able to save his kid, but he can't even save himself. Because they would understand that not saving myself was the act of saving my kid. So as they mocked Jesus, they spoke some truth, but they didn't know what they were saying. Notice in verse 32, they say, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. But little did they know that if he came down from that cross, they wouldn't have anything to believe in. I mean, they would definitely have to acknowledge his power. They'd have to acknowledge that he was the true king of the universe, but it would have been a hopeless acknowledgement. If there was no sacrifice for sin, there never could have been a relationship with that king. There would only be a fearful waiting for his judgment. They said they would only believe if he came down from the cross, but he was dying so that they could believe. Let's read the the rest of this passage. And as we do, just remember that, that this is the death that Jesus experienced for us. So verse 32 again, Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two, from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. So Jesus hangs on the cross and dies. The veil in the temple is torn. That divider between God and man is torn right down the middle. Jesus went and was willingly forsaken by his father so we wouldn't have to be. 
He was crucified for our sins so that we could one day reign with him in glory. This is the news that we need. We need this news for, for the dark nights that we walk through as Christians. There are times where where our doubts rise up and we start to think, if God were with me, if God had not forsaken me, then then my life wouldn't go this way. We can start to feel God forsaken when when your marriage hasn't gone the way you wanted it to go, your kids haven't grown up the way you've wanted them to, your career is not where you hoped it would be at this point, life didn't go the the way that you planned. And you look at the whole thing and you say, I I feel like God isn't here. I feel like he's just left me. And some of this comes from the fact that we do carry a guilt, that we we know that we deserve to be forsaken by God. We've sinned and we've rebelled against him. We've been his enemies. We deserve for him to ditch us and to, to leave us to reap all that we'd sown. But when Jesus died on that cross, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that for all eternity, we would never have to cry that. As Christians, he was forsaken so that we wouldn't be. And so we'll have those dark nights of the soul when our doubts go deep. And we could wonder, how could God ever love me? How could he ever be here? We wonder, has God forsaken me? But when it feels like he has, it only feels that way. Because he will never forsake those that he handed his righteousness to in that great exchange on the cross. When we feel like God couldn't possibly love me, we look again to the cross where God forsook his son so that we could live. So this is the place we look again and again in those dark nights, in those times of doubt, in those times of hopelessness, in those times where it feels like he's far. We look to the cross to know his heart for us. And this is also good news when we know that we're sinners who are guilty. On that cross, Jesus uttered that loud cry, it is finished, and then he breathed his last and fully paid for our sin, completely. He paid the debt for us. And if we know that, if we know that he died for us, we know that he was buried, we know that he rose again, and we're willing to repent, we're willing to turn from our sin, we're willing to turn from whatever was driving us before and turn to believe in him and his death and resurrection for us, When we turn to him, we know that it was finished for us. We know that the debt was paid for us. We know that we can really be forgiven because of what Jesus accomplished on that cross. That means that if we've repented and trusted in him, there's no more condemnation. There's no more real guilt before God. There's no more wrath waiting for us. He only deals with us as friends if we're Christians. And in light of that, we need to reflect on the depth of our sin and and confess it to him. We need to reflect on the weight of all that he endured for us so that this message of the cross can go to the deep places in our hearts and transform the way that we live. And so for now, let's take some time to to pray silently. Um, In the silence, let's do a couple of things. Number one, let's express to God our gratitude, thanking him for all that he endured for us on that Good Friday. Number two, let's, let's confess our sins. Again, acknowledging that our only hope was that cross and that that cross is enough. So let's pray in silence for a minute.
Father, we are in awe that you sent your son to die for us. Jesus, we know that on that day, every lash with the whip, the crown, the nails, and the blood were all for us. So forgive us for the sins that held you there. And forgive us for ever believing that that wasn't enough for us. That somehow we could have more if we strayed from you. Forgive us for believing that there's more to be found than the life that we have in you, that there's a better life outside of you, outside of obedience to you. Forgive us for believing those lies. We only believe them because we take our eyes off of your cross. Forgive us for believing that we're not fully forgiven as Christians. That you're not now fully for us. Forgive us for believing that you don't call us friends, as if your cross were insufficient to pay for all of our sins. We confess that when we believe all these things, we're joining our voices with those mockers when we say that you haven't fully conquered and that there's something that we need to add to it and that there's more guilt for us to carry and more penance for us to pay. Forgive us for mocking the sufficiency of your cross. Holy Spirit, we just pray that you would apply this truth to our hearts tonight. I pray for those in this room who don't believe that you wouldn't let them get away from the draw of your spirit to yourself. You'd help them to turn from sin and unbelief and turn to trust in the cross of Jesus and his resurrection as powerful to save. We also pray that that the message of the cross would reassure us tonight. Reassure us of your love. Reassure us, reassure us that you're for us. Reassure us of the power of your forgiveness. We pray that it would give us hope in dark times of doubt and remind us of your love. We confess that even our belief in this is insufficient. We believe all of this, so help our unbelief tonight. As we worship you, give us the gift of faith all over this room, and I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.